When I was at music school, not all my talks begin with music, by the way, I just wanted you to know that, but when I was at music school, I had a car trip with a fellow musician, his name was Dave, and he played the trombone, an excellent instrument if anyone plays the trombone. And uh, we, we uh, were driving together to perform at a jazz festival at a place called Armadale. We were driving from a place called Canberra. I know you've never heard of either of these places, even though Canberra is the capital city of my country. And it was a 10-hour drive from Canberra to Armadale. And I was a new Christian. And so I was, as new Christians often are, so eager to, to share my new faith in Christ with my fellow musician. Now, Dave came from a Catholic background. He went to Catholic school, and like just about everyone I've ever known who went to Catholic school, that meant that he wanted nothing to do with God or Christianity. But we had this excellent conversation for, for 10 hours. He was kind of stuck there with me, but we had this great conversation about what Jesus has achieved for us, that he died on the cross for our sins. And because he was coming from a Catholic background, I wanted to make sure that he understood that we're saved by grace, through faith, not by the works that we do. Because naturally, from his background, he was sort of mixed up on those things. He thought you had to do certain things to be a, a good Catholic, to be a good Christian. And we talked for a couple of hours, you know, and I, I really stressed the point, it's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us through his death and resurrection. And that all that we need to do is believe in Him, to trust in Him. And I knew that Dave understood this point finally when he said, Aha! That sounds pretty good. I think I would like to put my trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And I'm like, all right, high five God, yeah. What a team. And, and then he said, but I want to keep living the way I'm living. And I said, no, 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 no. You can't keep living the way you're living. And I knew how he was living. He said, why not? You said it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus has done. I'm like, that's right. Then I want to keep living the way I'm living. And I said, no, no, you can't do that. That's not the way it works. And he'd say, why? And I said, I don't really know why. <laughs> But I know that's the truth. My problem was I couldn't understand, I couldn't explain, because I didn't understand, how salvation by faith relates to a life of obedience. I couldn't explain that. And I think that a lot of Christians would struggle to explain that. If you're saved by what Christ has done, why do we have to live a certain way? What's that all about? Why do the things that we do matter all of a sudden? If they don't contribute to our salvation, why do they have to follow our salvation? You see the problem? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul wrestled with that very question. Well, he didn't really wrestle with it. He wrote to people who he thought would probably wrestle with that question. And we're going to turn for our second talk to Romans chapter 6 where Paul addresses this very question. The reason he addresses this question is because in chapters 1 to 5 of Romans, Paul has been explaining his gospel. And what he said is, in chapters 1 and 2, 
the whole world, both Jews and Gentiles, which means the whole of humanity, are guilty before God. They've rebelled against Him. They've offended Him. They've rejected Him and are deserving of His judgment and His wrath. And then at the end of chapter 3, he says, But, but God in His mercy sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die as a propitiation for our sins. That is, an atoning sacrifice where he would take the penalty for our sins, for the sins of all humanity, upon himself, meaning that anyone who believed in him would be forgiven and would be reconciled to God and would have a relationship with God for all eternity. And then in chapter 4 of Romans, he defends that thesis by appealing to the faith of Abraham and King David and said, see, it's always been by faith not by works that you were made right with God. It's always been by trusting, by believing. You are declared righteous. You are declared right with God. Then in chapter 6, he anticipates the obvious question, the Dave the trombonist question. So why don't we just keep on living the way we want to live if we're saved by grace, through faith, not by things that we've done? Why does it matter what we do? And that's the very question Paul anticipates, and that's the question he answers in Romans chapter 6. So let's take a look there, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's our Dave, the trombonist's question. Are we going to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And here's Paul's short answer, verse 2. By no means. No way, Jose. No. That's the short answer. I did that answer, but I didn't have the long answer. And what we have in the rest of the chapter is Paul's long answer. Now, I have to tell you that this is probably the most complicated of the four talks that I'm doing at this conference. And so, empowered by good food and Holy Spirit, I hope that you'll stay with me. It's a little naughty, and I hope that we come out all together at the end, okay? But put your seatbelts on, and let's go for it. Okay, so the longer answer begins in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? not really so much of an answer as a question. But to understand the question, we need to understand this phrase, dying to sin. What does it mean to die to sin? In some ways, that is the key to understanding this whole chapter. Some people take this phrase, dying to sin, to mean something like, I'm giving up chocolate. You know, I'm going to really fast from chocolate. I'm going to get it out of the house. I'm not going to eat chocolate. I am dead to chocolate. And chocolate is dead to me. That's the way they take it. So the idea is, I've become a Christian now, and now all those sins that I used to enjoy and all those things that characterize my life, I'm dead to that. I'm going to fast from that. I'm not going to indulge in that. Well, I don't think that's the right way to read this. It's not the right way to understand it. And if you do understand it, you get into a lot of trouble in your Christian life because all of a sudden you say, I really want chocolate. And you break your fast. And you eat the chocolate. And then you think to yourself, 
Either I'm a very bad Christian or maybe I'm not a Christian at all. So it's very important we understand what it means to die to sin. And I want to propose an answer to you. It means realm transfer. Realm transfer. You know what a realm is? Like a dominion, like a kingdom, like a, a country, a realm. It's, it's people living under authority. Might be a crown prince, might be a king, might be a democratic political system. But whoever lives under the authority of that realm is in the realm, is controlled by that realm. They belong to that realm or that kingdom that dominion. And when Paul talks about sin in Romans chapter 6, he is actually talking about, well, he's not talking about chocolate, okay? He's talking about the realm of sin. He's talking about the dominion of sin. He's talking about the kingdom of sin, so that everyone who's in that kingdom is ruled by, and in fact is a slave of, sin. Let me show you why I think this. If you scan through verses 1 to 16, you'll see language that shows us that before Christ, we were slaves in the realm of sin. We were slaves. Sin was the master, the king, the ruler, and we were living under its realm. We see it in verse 6. At the end of that verse, Paul says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We see it in verse 9. Death no longer has dominion over him. By the way, I'm including death in this realm, death and sin. Verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body. 14, sin will have no dominion over you. 16, don't you know that if uh, you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience? Verse 17, thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient. Verse 18, having been set free from sin. Verse 20, you were slaves of sin. Verse 22, you've been set free from sin. You see, all, all the way through the chapter, we have this language of sin being like a ruler. Sin and death together. They're rulers together in this realm, in this dominion, in this kingdom and everyone is born into that kingdom. Everyone, every human being is born into that kingdom. We are born into the realm of sin and death, which means we are born into a situation in which we are slaves. We are born slaves. And the slave masters are sin and death. And actually, this picture carries on something that Paul began in Romans chapter 5, from 12 to 21. Some of you might know this passage, where Paul contrasts Adam with Christ. And the picture that develops from Romans 5 through to Romans 6 is that Adam and Christ represent these two kingdoms. On the one hand, there's the kingdom of Christ, there's the realm of Christ, the dominion of Christ. He's like the captain of that team. There's team Jesus Christ, okay? And he rules that realm through righteousness and peace and love. 
But then there's Adam's kingdom or Adam's team. And he, well, he actually doesn't rule that team because he's dead. Right? But he's the face. They put a human face, more like a head on a pole, probably, as the captain of that team. But the real rulers of that team are sin and death. Okay? So being in Christ means you're in the realm of Christ. You're under his authority in that new kingdom that he rules. Or you're in the realm of Adam in his team, really under the rule of sin and death. Do you see? And it's very important to understand sin that way. Sin is an evil slave master and you are born under its authority. And the problem with being born in Adam or being born under the realm of sin is it is impossible to escape. There's only one way you can get out of this realm. It's like the mafia. You know, the Godfather says, every time I try to get out, they just pull me back in. You can't escape the mafia. There's only one way out of the mafia. You know what it is? Death. Death is the only way out of the mafia. And death is the only way out of the realm of Adam, out of the realm of sin and death. There's only one way out. It's death. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized into his death. Now, it's going to take us a little while to see it as we work through the next few verses. But this is how we escape the realm of sin and death. It's by dying with Christ. I told you that was the theme of the second talk. Dying with Christ. That's how we escape. But first we have to sort of unpack these verses a little bit. All of you, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ Jesus? Well, of course, some people will think of it as literal baptism with water. That that's what Paul is talking about right here. When you're baptized in the name of Christ, then you are baptized into his death. Whatever that means. We'll get to that in a second. But I don't think that's what being baptized into Christ means. Because Paul is using very metaphorical language through this whole section. He's talking about being baptized into Christ's death, even being buried with him. That's not literal. You weren't literally buried with Christ. No one here is that old. You weren't there 2,000 years ago to be buried with him. This is figurative spiritual language that he's talking about. And so I think being baptized into Christ Jesus is Paul's way of speaking about conversion, spiritual baptism, receiving the Spirit through faith in Christ. That is your baptism into Christ Jesus. So Paul's point here in verse 3 is, if you've been baptized into Christ, meaning if you're a Christian, if you've become a Christian through faith in Christ, then you were baptized into his death. You were baptized into his death. It means that somehow you, when you become a Christian, share in the death of Christ. Verse 4, he continues, We were buried, therefore, with him. Not only did you die with Christ, you were even buried with him. 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's saying there in verse 4 that if you die with Christ, if you're buried with Christ, then you will also live with Christ. You'll be raised with Christ, but that's my topic for the next talk, so I'm going to leave that alone for now. Then we get to verse 5, and for the life of me, I don't know why this translation creates a paragraph break here, because this explains verse 4. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here we really get to the heart of our theme, union with Christ. If you've been united with Christ in a death like his, you will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is Paul talking about? What does it mean to be united into Christ's death and into his resurrection? What does it mean to die with Christ? Well, I mentioned earlier in the first talk that when you put your trust in Jesus, you become connected to him. Remember that? You become united to him. The way a husband and wife are united, Ephesians 5, becoming one flesh together. It's also a bit like hitching your wagon to his wagon. When you become a Christian, you hitch your wagon to his wagon. Or maybe your camel to his camel. And the point is, wherever he goes, you go. Wherever he goes, you go. If he dies, you die too. You die with him. And what it means is your spiritual self dies. Your old person, the person you were before Christ, is dead. Died with Christ. Christ takes it, is joined to him, and his death is the end of your former life. And because your wagon is hitched to his wagon, or your camel is hitched to his camel, then when he's buried, spiritually you're buried with him. And when he's raised from the dead... You are raised from the dead spiritually and you become a new person. You are born again. Without union with Christ, you simply cannot be a Christian. You may not have known about union with Christ before today. But it's true. When you believe in Jesus, you're connected to Him so that the old person dies with Christ and a new person is raised to life with Christ. He goes on in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's exactly what I was just saying. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Okay, here's the new idea. If you're crucified with Christ, your old person dies. Okay, but the new idea is that because of that, you will no longer be enslaved to sin. Why? Why will you no longer be enslaved to sin? The answer is in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's the key. The person who has died has been set free from sin. Remember how we said the only way out of the mafia is to die? The only way out of the realm of sin and death is to die? So the person who does die has now escaped out of that realm. You see how it works? You escape out of the control 
of sin and death. Out of this evil tyranny. Out of this kingdom ruled by sin. Because you died with Christ. Because you are united to Christ in his death, you are able to escape Adam's realm, the realm of sin and death. The one who died has been set free from sin. You know, it's really kind of a little hard to illustrate this apart from the obvious mafia illustration. But I did see one once in that cinematic classic, Mission Impossible 3. Now, Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, he gets himself into some trouble with some bad guys and they knock him out or something like that. And then when he wakes up, he discovers that they have implanted in his head this micro-explosive, a really itty-bitty little explosive that's big enough to blow his head up in his head. And not only that, this explosive is powered by his the, the energy generated by his brain, his neural whatever, whatever it is, okay? So, in other words, he cannot disarm this bomb unless his brain stops powering it. In other words, he cannot disarm the bomb unless he dies. And in one of the more audacious scenes in the Mission Impossible series, his wife, his poor wife, is with him in this one. And he says, okay, inject me with this stuff. I'm going to inject myself with this stuff that's going to kill me. And she's like, huh? And he's like, after two minutes, get these wires, right? Tap, tap, and shock me back to life. And guess what? It worked. But the point is this, he realized in order to live, he had to die. In order to live, he had to die. It's the only way to defuse the bomb, and it is the only way to escape the rule of sin and death. The one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 9, now if we have died with Christ, and he's just established that you have, so it's not one of those ifs of possibility, right? It's a rhetorical if. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know, verse 9, that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now that raises a question, doesn't it? Verse 9. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Why not? I mean, he raised Lazarus from the dead, right? John chapter 11. I've been in Lazarus' tomb. It's empty. He's not there. He got up and he left. But you know what happened? He died again. Poor guy had to die twice. Why didn't he stay alive? Like Jesus stays alive. Why is Jesus' death and resurrection different from Lazarus's death and resurrection. It's because he has defeated death, whereas when Lazarus was raised, death had not yet been defeated. 
Jesus performed that as a sign to show what he was going to do, to show what he would one day have the authority to do forever, raise us from the dead like Lazarus, but forever. And he would only have that authority by defeating death. But how do you defeat death according to the Bible? You first got to defeat sin. Sin and death work together. Remember when Adam and Eve, they sinned in Genesis chapter 3? And death was promised as a result. You sin, consequence of sin is you die. From that point on, every human being is going to die. Because every human being sins. As soon as you sin, you're dead. You're going to die. Sin and death work together. They're like an evil cooperative. But if you deal with sin, then you deal with death. So Jesus' death on the cross for all human sin is his conquering of sin. He deals with it. The debt has been paid. And once the debt has been paid, sin becomes powerless. And once sin becomes powerless, death becomes powerless. You know, in Australia, uh, we are the home of many dangerous creatures. And the deadliest spider in the world resides in Sydney. It's called the funnel-web spider. It's a horrible little thing. It's obviously a result of the fall. And it's one of these aggressive spiders. It's not one of these ones that, you know, leave it alone, don't provoke it, it'll be fine. No, it sees you, it chases you, gets up on its hind legs, and it runs after you. I had a relative chased around a house by one until she managed to run by the laundry, pick up the broom, and get it. If you're bitten by a funnel-web spider, you will be dead within 40 minutes unless you get the anti-venom. Now, don't get me wrong, please visit Australia. <laughs> no one has died from a funnel-web spider for 40 years because the anti-venoms are readily available, all right? And plus, I lived in Sydney for 12 years, I never even saw one in the wild. Okay, so they're not everywhere, right? But they are there somewhere. <laughs> but here's the thing. If you take a funnel-web spider and if you snap its fangs off, what does it become? It just becomes a furry plaything. Because it can't hurt you anymore. It can't get its venom into you. It's just like death once you've snapped off sin. Once you've dealt with sin, death has lost its fangs. Death cannot bite you. Death cannot own you. Death cannot kill you. That's what's going on here. Jesus' death and resurrection is different from Lazarus' death and resurrection because in Jesus' death, he overpowered sin. And so in his resurrection, he overpowered death. And that's what he says in verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now that's all very well for Jesus. But how does it affect the rest of us? The death and resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago. Why does it affect me and my death and resurrection? Why does it affect you and you? And you'll say, by faith. Okay. Why does that make it work? Well, if you've been paying attention, you know the answer. 
because you died with Christ and you were raised with Christ. You have union with Christ. You've hitched your wagon to his wagon. So his conquering of sin applies to you and his conquering of death applies to you too. That is why union with Christ is so crucially important. Without that, you cannot be a Christian because you can't die with Christ and be raised with Christ. And if you can't die with Christ, then you can't escape the realm of sin and death. You stay in your sins. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. There's no resurrection of the dead. You're still in your sins. You're still in your sins. But in verse 11... He says, all of this is true. Now, here's what you need to do. You need to know this. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, everything I've unpacked from verses 1 to 10, this is absolutely true whether you know it or not. Now what I want you to do is know it. I want you to understand it. And I want you to realize that you have already died to sin. So think of yourself that way. You've already been raised to new life with Christ. So think of yourself that way. Consider yourselves. Union with Christ Dying with Christ, it's one of those truths that can be true. You know, these things happen in life. They're true about you, even when you don't realize it. And later you come to realize it. And hopefully, in this case, it's good news. Sometimes it's not good news. But in this case, it's good news. And it reminds me of a story about an African-American man in 1865. In 1865, President Abraham Lincoln helped to bring about the 13th Amendment passed by Congress and later ratified by the states, the United States of America, forever banning slavery. Now this man, he lived in Atlanta, Georgia. His whole life, he had been a slave. He was born a slave. He was raised a slave. All he knew was being a slave. Then all of a sudden, he's not a slave. Because the United States has just passed legislation forever banning slavery in that country. One day he was a slave. The next day, he was free. Now, this man was walking down the street in his new freedom, and he sees his former slave master. And his former slave master says, Hey, boy, come here. Now, what do you think is going to happen When that man, the former slave, when he hears that voice of his former master. Because on the one hand, 
He's free. Legally, he's free. He knows he's free. But he has spent his whole life obeying that voice. Whatever that voice told him to do, he was trained, he was conditioned to do it. Which means when he heard that voice telling him what to do on that day, probably every fiber of his body wanted to obey. He would have felt the pull to obey. And that's what it's like for former slaves to sin. You've spent your whole life obeying sin as your master, allowing sin to tell you what to do. Every fiber in your body is conditioned to listen to that voice. And so when sin says, hey, come here, you feel the pull. Your body wants to do it. But that man on that day knew the truth. That he was no longer a slave, but free. Even though his body was telling him to obey, he clinged to what he knew to be true. And he walked up to his former slave master and he said, I do not belong to you anymore. I am free. And he walked away. And that ought to be our response when our former slave master calls us. If you consider yourself dead to sin, if you know that that is true, if you believe that, then you can say to sin, I am not your slave anymore. I am free. And you can walk on by. That's why it's so important, friends, that we know this. It's already true. But if you don't know it, you can't act on it. You need to know that you've died with Christ. And you have escaped the realm of sin and death. And you have a new master. So Paul continues in verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Here's the application. Don't let sin reign or rule over you. And you think, well, Sin is no longer my master. How can this even happen? And the answer is, only if you let it happen. If that former slave in Atlanta decided that he would continue to obey his former master's voice, then he effectively puts himself back into slavery. He doesn't have to. He's free. But if he chooses to, he becomes a slave again. So Paul recognizes that you have been set free from the rule of sin and death. You do not have to do what it tells you to do. So don't choose to do it. You know, there's a really scary statistic about 
prisoners who had been imprisoned for various crimes after a certain period of time in prison, once they receive their freedom, will deliberately, deliberately reoffend in order to go back to prison. It's a scary statistic, something like more than 30%, maybe up around 40% after you've been in prison for 10 years or more. And that just seems so incomprehensible to us, at least to me. You've just lost so much of your life behind bars. Why would you deliberately get yourself thrown back in there? And the answer is, it's what they know. You think freedom in the world is going to be great, but you just can't make the adjustment. No one knows who you are out there anymore. Or the people who do look down on you because of what you've done. Hard to get a job. Hard to get any social standing. Hard to have anyone respect you or take you seriously. But inside, you've got your community. Maybe you're a bit of a boss, you know, in the prison. People look up to you, they respect you. At least they leave you alone. You know what you need to do. You have your identity there. It can be hard for prisoners to learn to live free. And so it can be hard for us too. When we receive our freedom in Christ, when we've escaped the slavery of sin and death, it can be difficult to learn how to live free. The truth is we might miss our prison cell. That's the life you know. You understand who you are there. You know how the rules work. It's comfortable, it's familiar. But it's also crazy. The key has turned. The door has opened. Why would you stay there in your cell when you can pick yourself up and walk out to freedom? Don't obey the call of sin. Let not sin reign. Let it not rule in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The word instruments is a polite translation. It's literally weapons. Weapons. Don't use your members, by which he means the parts of your body. Whether it's your mind or your eyes or your tongue or your hands or your feet, all the things that we do with, you know, what we do, we do with them. Don't let those members, those parts of you, work as weapons for unrighteousness, for sin. Because now you don't belong to sin. You've changed teams. You've changed allegiance. You're in a new kingdom now. You have a different Lord. And so you offer your body as a weapon for righteousness, as a weapon for what is good, as a weapon for what is holy. In other words, 
play for the team that you're on. Play for the team that you're on. Now, sometimes it's true, as Christians, we can score an own goal. You know what that is in football, in soccer? You know, you accidentally kick the, the ball into your own goal, and it scores a point for the other team. That happens, doesn't it? It happens. In that situation, there is still grace. It doesn't change what team you're on. Sometimes we score an own goal and we think, maybe I'm really not a Christian. No, you're on the same team. You scored one for the other team. Don't worry. You're still on the winning team. That team has already won and will win in the end. And your place on the team is secure. But stop, st stop scoring goals for the other team. Okay? No more own goals. Play for your team. Let your whole body serve as a weapon for righteousness, for team Christ. 4 verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Here it is, folks. That is why we die with Christ. By faith, we join to him. His death becomes our own, which means we escape out of the mafia, out of the realm of sin and death, and we are raised in a new life. We're on a new team, in a new kingdom, under a new ruler. Know that and live that. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us from sin and death by uniting us to your Son and causing us to die with him so that we might rise with him. And having been raised, we now belong to you. Father, help us to know the truth, that we are no longer slaves, but free. Help us to know that and help us to live that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Con. Uh, before we take a break, I'm going to take an opportunity and sit and we'll just have oh. a little bit of an interview. Okay. Right now. Sure. <laughs> I'll do half the talk. Okay, good. nice. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your family before we dive into mm -hmm. talking about the topic that you've Sure. Uh, so I've been married uh, to Bronwyn, Bron, uh, for <coughs> one years, and uh, <laughs> we have three. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, Three kids, Jasmine's our oldest, she's 16, um, Xanthi's 14, and Lucas is 12, 13, and we have a dog called Mela. Yeah. What's the dog's name? Mela. Okay. Yes. Um, this idea of union with Christ, obviously you're, you're an expert in the Pauline epistles in particular. 
But is it an idea that we find through the rest of the New Testament as well? Yes, it is in, in other parts of the New Testament. Paul is the main guy for this idea. But you see Jesus talking about it in John's Gospel especially, mm -hmm. in chapters 14 to 16, where he says, 